Okay, I know we took a little longer on that one, but let's keep going. Number seven, salvation, the gospel. Can LDS believe what Jesus taught? Let's look at Mark 2. Let's look at Mark 2. Healing of the paralytic. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was even, sorry, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. This association with Jesus and the word. We're not just waiting for John on that. He's preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, now notice, starts with the preaching of the word, and that's leading to their faith, he said to the paralytic. Notice, that's not just an individual view of faith. He saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, my son, or um, it's, it's a pretty powerful line. It could be translated even my child. But anyway, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or it could be the one God, except one that is God. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Who's the Son of Man? We're not going to go there, but Daniel 7. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, rise, pick up your bed. And go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, here's something easy to miss. Notice Jesus isn't questioning the Shema. In fact, it's the same mark that shows it's the most important commandment. What's this idea that only God can forgive sins? Well, there's several places that talk about this, but let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13. I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit. Understand that I am he. Understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Wait. So the one God, the great I am, said there, will, there is not a God formed before, and there will, never, there will not be a God formed after. That sounds like monotheism. Yep, it is. I, I am the Lord. And notice the word Lord and God there. It's not Elohim is the Father, not Jehovah is the Son, or some form of that, whatever variant of Mormonism you believe. No, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. So God, Lord, and Savior are now linked. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. 
Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I work, who can turn it back? Verse 25, same chapter. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Oh, interesting. We have a parallelism between transgressions and sins, meaning the same thing, not a distinction that you will find in LDSism. How about Isaiah 44, 6? Thus says the Lord, King of Israel and his Redeemer. Wait, the Lord, who's King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then verse 8, is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So he doesn't even know of any. Yep. Yep. So they're right on this. No one can forgive sins but God. Who forgives sins in this scene? Who forgives sins in this scene? It's um, without compromising the uniqueness of God, we are seeing it's almost like there's two persons. Father, Son, one God. The Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Father, but they are one God, essentially. Seems like that's what Mark's view of Christ is. And notice also this one God who is the Son of Man, another scene in Daniel 7 where there's two figures, but one God, both described with features only described of as God. Look at this. The Messianic authority, I say to you, get up, and he got up, was raised. Take up your pallet. Immediately he took up his pallet. Go to your house. He went out in front of them all. And notice the forgiving of sin is, is seen in the healing of sickness, restoring to health, and then restoring to his home. Kind of interesting. There's a social element. Just as there was a social element that brought the paralytic into the home, there's a social element in sending him home healed. Also, only God can read hearts. That's also Old Testament. We won't take the time to go there. But there are plenty of references where God is the only one who can read the human heart. Who's reading human hearts in this scene? Jesus. So I guess we're not waiting for John on uh, Jesus, the whole Jesus is fully God thing, right? Well, let's head to John. By the way, once again, <laughs> when you see in the LDS manual all year long about how, um, of course, very much like Joseph Smith has said, see how far you can be a savior. <laughs> but when you think of your temple work and your genealogy as somehow participating in the salvation of men, say, helping save all this stuff that... If you've listened all year, you know we're not making that up. Um, no, 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 no. Even the Pharisees got this right. Only God can forgive sins. Only the one God can for, uh, forgive sins. And of course, for the Christian, that one God is uniquely revealed in Christ and Him alone. Let's continue with that theme um, in John. In John 6, it's a long chapter recommend reading all of it. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. Verses 28 and 29. Let's see here. Well, even in 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Notice, don't work, see the irony? Don't work for food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you. So the, the work is that of receiving what he gives. Right? For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? <laughs> Notice. <laughs> Jesus' focus, it's, it's uh, not actually on the nature of, of work, but what's, what is or what is not a, an appropriate goal. Uh, his point was not that they should uh, do something radically new, you know, form some new form of work, um, you know, that, that will then equate to these blessings. You know, you do this, you get that kind of thing that's uh, very common around here. Um, no, um, th- that's where they jump. That's, that's literally the, peril, the, the bad example that Jesus is going to correct. Because what does he then say? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. What? To try even harder and see how far you can become a God? No, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God, to believe in Christ. So <laughs> they're focusing all on just work. What must we do in order to work the works of God, right? Tell us what God requires. We will do it. Um, and this this is, and I like this point by D.A. Carson, that this displays, no doubt, about their intrinsic ability, their, their view, that they can meet that challenge. There's no sense of their dire need, right? Blessed are what? The beggars in spirit, Jesus says. Why beggars? They know they have nothing. They know their need. They are blessed because they know their need. It's the rich men <laughs> that um, we're going to get to in a minute, though I didn't, I could have made a whole point on that, on what wealth means in the Mormon worldview at least has. Um, but no, they, they think, oh yeah, I can do it. Just tell us what to do. We will do it, right? They evince no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift within the purview of the Son of Man who's right there in front of them, right? The work of God, what God requires, is faith. Faith is not a power. It's not some Gnostic uh, level-up motion. (laughs) This is not, (laughs) ironically, some work that um, bears itself out in fruit that's interpreted by experience or whatever. The LDS want to say is faith. No, faith... Faith in this context is in the object of Christ, right? That's what it requires. It's not um, faith in faith even, right? And as we're going to get to, that faith itself is even um, the fruit of God's activity. He is seeking, as he already said in John 4, right? As we covered, God is spirit. God is speaking, the Father, right? He is seeking a people to worship him um, in spirit and in truth. So, if we continue here, um, jumping to 37 or so, let's see here. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Hear that? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Right? Um, if, and to keep going, for I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? So, um, right, I, I really like what Carson says on this as well, right? That Jesus's confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people, right? Far from it. His confidence is in his Father, right? To bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So if you don't come to him, what do you assume? What's, what's, we're going to get there, right? What's the, um, right, the other, the flip side of that coin? Uh, Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian, yeah, I'd say, right? And so whoever comes to me, I will certainly keep and preserve, right? The Father gives to Jesus as a gift to his son. They will come to him. They will come by virtue having been given by the Father to the Son. So, once again, think of LDS agency. Think of the LDS view on um, universal salvation, basically, if you interpret salvation as a resurrection to some level of glory, with maybe uh, maybe an exception that may include Satan, maybe, um, as a son of perdition, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, and then just this kind of, particular exaltation scheme based on your level of worthiness. No, no, no. What? Notice, none of that said. It's not temple work. It's not genealogy. What is the work of God in this scene? To believe in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, even that is the Father drawing you to the Son by the Spirit. So if you keep going in this scene, right, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among themselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 44, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written. Oh, another, it is written. It's almost as if Jesus trusts the scriptures. Is that clear enough today? It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. This is Isaiah 54. Okay. They will be taught by God. Right. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Uh, going back to John 1, right? the invisible God made visible in Christ. Christ is the one who reveals him. But notice, it just yeah, let that sink in. What does Jesus say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Just let it sink in. <laughs> what did Jesus just teach? This drawing activity of the Father cannot be reduced right, to just some sort of universal gift, because God can't be the distinguishing feature. No. In Adam, we have all sinned. We brought that on ourselves, right? We are condemned already, right? What does it say in John 3, in the, a verse that LDS will even use this verse, but they don't seem to see the whole thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
once again, believes, not obeys and exalts himself and all that in temples and genealogies and all these other works. 10% of income and uh, <laughs> I mean, all this stuff, right? Uh, there's no end to the works an LDS will imagine uh, are important for their own exaltation. That was me. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? Why does he have to come in to condemn? It's already condemned. That's, that's what's normal, is the condemnation in Adam, right? So this is, once again, you need a recognition of the original sin of Adam as a state in which we all share. And it's salvation that's exceptional. And it's based on the work of God. We are dead in sins and trespasses until God acts. And the Father draws, the son, draws those he elects to the Son by the Spirit. By the Spirit. And what did Jesus say? No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is, this is key. And, and once again, he doubles down. This becomes an issue. There's other issues we're not going to get into here for the sake of what I'm trying to accomplish in this, uh, ep- this episode. But once again, if you look at the very end of the chapter, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So they see, oh, they, they hear what he has to say. That's hard. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? There's a double meaning there. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Where he was, not where we all were before, by the way. Only Christ, where he was before. (laughs) Not all of us. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Sounds pretty Pauline to me. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Very, um, I think, pretty clear. Pretty clear. And if you move forward in the Gospel of John, right, and go to chapter 8 to continue this theme, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. Once again, There's a uniqueness to Jesus Christ that's not true of all of us. And that's not just the level of worthiness and the mission that we all voted on him in some pre-mortal council uh, in which we decided, you know, the plan or, you know, whether we would consent to it by our agency or whatever it is, whatever whatever variant you want to say. Uh, No, no, look at this. You, y'all, are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. But wait, what was the premortal council stuff? 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. Oh, you remember that from Isaiah? I, I am the Lord, I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Period. And they said to him, who are you? That's the question. That's the most important question anybody can ever wrestle with in this life. 
So the one God who is Christ, recognizing the distinction of Father and Son, as John is careful to distinguish. But unless you believe Jesus is Yahweh, you will die in your sins. And by Yahweh, we mean the only God, the only God who exists, who is the only one who can forgive sins, and has told you in this text that the work of God is believing in him. That's the work of God. Let's go to Matthew on this same theme. This has been in the back of my mind ever since we weren't able to cover it as much as I wanted um, earlier last year. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more work. No. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And notice that rest for your souls, the suke, we get the word psychology from this. It's the true being of the person. It's, it's rest at the deepest level. But notice, it's not just subjective. Come to me. It's an objective rest, even if there's a subjective component in the deepest part of our souls. There's two yokes in the ancient world, and this is key, because probably the most obvious point to Christians in this passage will be the one that LDS uh, never consider. The an, an animal yoke harnesses two animals together to pull a plow or a cart. That's how the LDS manual and how I've ever heard growing up LDS it talked about is Jesus is, does his part, you do your part. So it's an animal yoke. So you come in and you just work with him. You know, make sure you do your genealogy because I mean, surely he doesn't have time for it. So the, the, the human yoke, this is one worn by a single person that distributes the weight of a load across the shoulders. And that's what's in view, right? We do have passages where an animal yoke is in view, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Philippians 4.3. But here's, here's part of why the assumption that it's the, this human yoke that's in view is whose yoke is it? My yoke, singular, right? <laughs> My yoke in verse 30. It's, it's, it's his yoke, it's not ours. <laughs> right. So the purpose of a human yoke, of course, is to make it easier. It is a burden to bear, but it's better to bear the burden with a yoke than without. And, and this is one of those things, um, th- these nuances that sometimes can be missed because there's a negative connotation, but there's positive connotations with yoke as well, um, and not just in this passage. But the negative aspect tends to focus not so much on the function of the yoke, but the unwanted imposition of a burden and the servitude it implies. Look at Matthew 23, 4, right? Where the scribes and Pharisees, they're putting heavy, cumbersome burdens, right? But clearly, the double harness with Jesus is in the point. Um, He's offering those who are finding their loads too hard to carry a new yoke, which far from adding will ease the burden in paradoxically bring not further toil, but rest. And yet, this rest is not a relaxation of the demands of righteousness, but a new relationship with God centered on a Christ who fulfilled all righteousness. It's his work. 
He did it. And then he's offering the salvation he has earned as a free gift to those who rely on his work, on his person and his work. This is completely absent in a system that emphasizes individual worthiness and exaltation, where Jesus is at best an example. They want to say Savior, but save how? (laughs) He can't become a God for you, um, and apparently everyone's good anyway, um, regardless, right? We all get resurrected, and apparently even um, unbelievers get a degree of glory that if we would see, we would kill ourselves to get there. So, this is, no, the, 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 the emphasis on, is on rest, rest. He, Christ is our Sabbath, and then we learn from him from this, and this is clearly has some sort of wisdom, Torah tradition as well, centered in Christ, where we, with his yoke, right, upon us, we learn from him. But he's gentle, lowly in heart with those who are his. This is just a, think of the ancient world and what power meant. Look at a Julius Caesar, look at a, you know, Genghis Khan. Look at what, how we often think the president of the United States should be. Now, in the kingdom of heaven, meekness is not incompatible with authority. And uh, with those who are unresponsive and hostile to Jesus, he will be fierce. Look at chapter 23. Get, let's get rid of Jesus, meek and mild, as if that's the only side. <laughs> He's meek and mild with whom? His little children, to whom God revealed the truth. He is gentle, considerate, lowly. Not in the sense of being unaware of his exalted status, the power he truly has over creation, but not using it to browbeat those whom he is saving. The whole you will find rest in your souls. That's a divine passive. It's, you could almost say, and we see this in Jeremiah 6.16. It's a riff off of this in the Hebrew. In, in Jeremiah 6.16, the reward, it's the reward that um, Yahweh offers to those who find and walk in the good way. And yet here Jesus offers this promise under his own authority. It's almost like Jesus is Yahweh. And yet once again, that rest is a rest that's not just compromise. It's not throwing out the old, not belittling the law. No, 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 no. It's in light of that gap between the holiness of God, the righteousness and the law, and how we fall short. And yet, in Christ, with his yoke, which he offers as a free gift to those who believe in him, it's rest. It's rest. There's a passage... um, I think is um, so good here. Titus chapter 2, I think 11 through 14 is what I, what I want to read. Listen to Paul here. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training. See that? Learn, train within the grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, singular, and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See that relationship? In Christ, still learning the law, still striving to be sanctified as we, to live in light of it, in light of the grace we have received. But it's not a relationship of condemnation. It's not you do this and you earn that and God somehow set up the rules and if you fall short, that's on you. Nope. That's not it. Let's look at Luke. Luke 23. And this one has been one that's come to mind almost every lesson because how powerful it is as an example of the objective salvation offered by Christ. So if we look, this is Jesus is on the cross here. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here's this moment of ascent, the Son of Man hanging. Um, crucifixion, of course, being not just a way to die, but um, a way to, it was shameful, naked. Um, there's there's people in America, even President of the United States, like Andrew Jackson, that would rather die than lose their honor. And um, crucifixion was not just a way to die; it was shameful. You you one of the ways you likely die on it is you can breathe. The most easiest, most natural. You don't have to think about it. Kind of things. And here you are, naked, writhing on a cross, can't struggling to breathe, and people mocking. And here, one of the criminals who does belong to be there, right, does, does belong there uh, relative to the you know, criminal law of the time. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. See that? He sees his need. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Notice, he doesn't lean within. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to use my meditative exercises, these clever techniques by which I can sort of, you know, find a way to separate myself from my circumstances. No, it doesn't lean into the real me. The real me didn't do these things. It's how I was raised. It's social structures. Oh, he doesn't lean, he doesn't lean within the experience and somehow reinterpret pain as an opportunity to transcend the body that's imprisoning his spirit. No, no. What does he do? He does, I dare say, what no true LDS can do. No true LDS can do this. This is what we're talking about here. Lean completely, wholeheartedly upon the mercy of God. He says, Jesus, remember me. You, objective, this person out here, apart from myself, apart from my feelings, apart from my experiences, remember me when you come into your kingdom, his kingdom, not this... Uh, Kingdom of gods, but by which we then go transplant to worlds we have created. <laughs> no. Please remember me. And he said to him, truly, 
I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we see 2 Corinthians 12, 3, Revelation 2, 7, paradise, heaven. That's what we're talking about. It's not some intermediate um, state. Even if there are systems that can make this work, I am thinking of a book that argues this, but it's even that book does not argue the Mormon view. <laughs> right? This all assumes, what does Jesus say in John 9? The night cometh where no man can work. This is not just giving him an opportunity to repent in the spirit world. Then if people and temples made with hands using a priesthood based on uh, claims that aren't historically accurate either, even on their own terms, um, are operating a priesthood of their own to do the temple work for the dead to in part save them. And then if they use their agency and obey and do all this in the spirit, then they'll be okay. And then they'll maybe they'll have an opportunity to progress within one of the three kingdoms that they receive. No, no, no. What, wherever Jesus went that day is where he said this man will be. And the only thing we know about this man is that he deserved to be on the cross he was on. The only thing we know about him is the worst. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me where I go. See, even in the Joseph F. Smith scheme, right? Jesus could go to spirit paradise he couldn't go to spirit prison. No, he's too worthy for that. And then set up missionaries and then send missionaries into spirit prison to give them the information, the not knowledge they need to save themselves. Whether you would say that last part or not, because you're trying to blend them with Christianity. <laughs> That's what it's doing. What actually does the saving? Clearly not Jesus. Yet here is absolutely the objective salvation of the triune God in Christ, in his moment of glory, that we, as the world, all see as the moment of shame and death. And in that moment, right, Christ, the Christ who will say it is finished, right, says on his account, this man will be with me. This man will be with me. And if we remember John 6, that is the work of the Father drawing this man who has no time, no opportunity to even repent of all those things and to obey and to be righteous. I know I'm overdoing this point. It's an important point. My challenge to any LDS listener, can you believe that and be LDS? I don't think so. So let's turn earlier on the point of justification where we see Jesus teach about what we see an example of him actually doing with the thief on the cross. Here's Jesus in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Uh, okay, So if you think you're righteous, um, he's saying this to you. And treated others with contempt. And what do we do, of course? What do we do? When we look at, um, we want to relativize our sin, what do we compare to? Well, someone who's doing worse in our view. That, that's not, you're not, God doesn't grade on a curve. We're going to get to that in the hell part. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he tells a parable. He trusted themselves that they were righteous. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Um, we don't have time for this, but in the context, there's a reason he's using tax collector. These were seen as grievous sinners. Um, by all at the time, all all Jews at the time. Excuse me. 
the Pharisee standing by himself. So they both go into the temple. Oh, look, righteous. They both go to the temple. They're going to pray. Yes, good, right? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice, these two men both isolate themselves. Jesus is making absolutely clear the distinction. And look, the Pharisee believes in grace. He thanks God he's not like other men. He believes in grace. After all you can do, right? Then what does he do? He goes immediately to ethics. See, I'm not, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this guy. Look, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. You know? Look at all the good I do. So thanks, God, that I'm not like these other people. See? He's semi-Pelagian. He's not Pelagian. Um, like a lot of Mormon theology is. But anyway, <laughs> this has a little more grace. He still has one God, <laughs> right? And grace somehow still functions in making him more righteous than other people. Now, here's the tax collector, right? That is also, he's isolating himself, standing far off. But not out of a sense of righteousness, but out of a sense of sin. And he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, showing he knows the problem is one of the heart. It's not just behavior. What does Jesus say to the Pharisees? You're whitewashed tombs. You just make, what, what's inside a tomb? Dead man's bones. We already looked at what Jesus said about the heart. You know, he clearly didn't believe in, <laughs> trust your heart. <laughs> no, opposite. Trust in God. Hope he changes your heart. You know, this, this man knew the problem. He knew his need. And so what does he pray? God, be merciful. He, he, he appeals to God's mercy. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. Jesus, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What? Yes, this is what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus said. And notice, there's not any evidence that he gives, because it's not prioritized by him, of a subjective awareness in this scene by the tax collector. In fact, the subjective awareness we're given is the Pharisee thinking, oh yeah, um, I'm righteous, and the tax collector recognizing his need. But Jesus objectively says, right, he goes home justified. And then what is Jesus' final comment? For everyone who exalts himself, exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice, will be exalted, divine passive. God will do it. God will do it. So yeah, when Jesus talks about salvation, uh, and there's, of course, way more that could be said, there's a few angles we've covered, a few texts we've covered. 
do any of these harmonize? Do they even rhyme? Do they are they even close to the LDS view of salvation? Whether on their universalism impulse that relativizes sin, makes it not as big a deal, or their particular impulse relative to an exaltation where the standards the church claims are necessary for exaltation keeps keep changing, yet none of the standards that have ever been taught are this, leaning wholly upon God's mercy for the salvation of souls. All right, number eight, the church. Did it fall? Uh, great apostasy stuff. Let's look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And we're going to focus, of course, mostly on... Um, uh, a point that, uh, as we have this whole time, a point that even if it's not the primary point is clearly a key point that has relevance to this issue. Um, starting in verse 15, he says, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Right, All the creeds and confessions, I think, of Christianity seek to properly answer that. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, interestingly enough, uh, living, of course, it, it you almost adds nothing, right? Because the one God of the Bible, he, if he's not living, he's not God. The God of Israel is the source of all life, and not just in the past, but at every moment. Which is So, Son of the living God. And then 17, this is interesting, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Uh, and Okay, for, for the LDS, flesh and bones haven't either. <laughs> okay, if you want to play the word game there. And you know how I can say that with confidence? Um well, let me, I guess I should finish the verse. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven, not our Father. And, and right here, the distinction is on, um, right, God who is not a man, right? Um, now, in Christ, we can pray our Father um, truly. But this flesh and blood is, is throughout the New Testament used to contrast humanity from God and other spiritual beings. 1 Corinthians 15.50, corruptible bodies are being contrasted, right, with uh, uh, spiritual bodies. We have Ephesians 6.12, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, uh, you know, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, one that I think is worth uh, pointing out, um, just because it has a, a another point that I think is particularly relevant um, as well, is in Hebrews. And if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 14, we've pointed this out before, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Uh, there's an angel-human distinction being made here with the idea that God became man, um, and that does not apply to angels, showing a distinction that LDS do not believe. For LDS, spirits are either pre-born humans or post-born, you know, post-death humans. Um, it, there's not a species distinction that is assumed here. And that continues into chapter 2, verse 14. 
right? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, this is making the point that a human savior is necessary because human beings, right, are in need of atonement, a need of a propitiatory, a a sacrifice, right? And so therefore he's sharing in the flesh and blood, which means it's not what he was before in some other life. And so clearly, and this is not said of the Father in this same book. So um, to, to point out one with Paul here, I just, I love this one, um, because Galatians being one of the earliest written texts of the New Testament, look how he distinguishes humans and God, um, even in his argument about Jesus. Paul an apostle, very first line. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Wait, wait, Paul, what about exalted men and exalted man, right? That's Heavenly Father. No, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And if you continue on, he says, he, um, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is any other, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, even if it's families forever, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he goes on, he goes on. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, with anyone. Um, this is interesting in how it's, it's contrasting divine revelation from flesh and blood. Right, clearly, clearly, there's a contrast there, and could go on, but I think it's here as well. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood or flesh and bones. Same, same difference biblically has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the gates of Hades, okay? And notice, I I love that, I will build my church. So Jesus says, it's my church, it's Christ's church. And there's even an unusual word order in the Greek that's bringing attention to this, my. Now, interestingly enough, as we saw already with Jesus as the true temple, This metaphor of a foundation rock and building is often used on the church. And the idea of a new temple replacing the old one in Jerusalem, that is also in play here um, in Matthew elsewhere, right? Something greater than the temple, 12.6, the destruction of the temple in chapter 24. The charge that Jesus planned to destroy and rebuild the temple, there's an ironic truth to that in 26.61 and 27.40, all of Matthew. And yet this ecclesia, this, this gathering, this, the church, it always refers to the community. 
It always refers to the community. And yet, this new temple, even in 1 Peter, right, as we already looked at, but this same Peter, right, this new temple is not a building of literal stones, but consists of living stones, using that temple imagery of the believing members of the church. Now, it is true that here, Hades, and we're going to get to this next with hell, is not the same as hell. Um, Really, you could say gates of death, right? The gates of Sheol, as we see in Isaiah 38. This um, represents the imprisoning power of death. And, And the point is, the church will never be destroyed. That's the point. He says, this is my church, right? On this rock, I will build my church. However you interpret the rock, that's not the point. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, be able to withstand it. Death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. Death won't be able to swallow up the new community which Jesus is building. Okay, so that's, I think, pretty clear. Pretty clear. Now, elsewhere, we have these parables, and I, I, we did spend some time on this um, elsewhere on this podcast feed, but I just want to bring this to mind here. If you look at the parable of the weeds or the wheat and the tares, right? Let's look at this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together. Until the harvest, harvest judgment. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. To be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, we continue. He's then going to explain this. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. What's being assumed here? Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven, sowed good seed. It's going to continue to grow, but there's going to be a mix of good and bad, and then Jesus is going to judge them. Let's keep going. Where's the apostasy in this? Maybe it's, it's as if this story assumes the very... When Jesus is teaching here, it is true of what Jesus teaches about his church in the later chapter that we just looked at. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. This is tying into the hell point. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like conscious torment to me. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Um, Similarly, in Mark 4, 
this is really important. And I, the Mark study I referred to earlier, this really came to mind where it talks about, uh, this is a parable unique to Mark. It's of the seed growing. It makes a similar point, but in a different way. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Remember, the very kingdom of God Marks opens with, right? That's at hand. That, that is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Well, this same kingdom, right, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He's not aware of this mechanism, and yet the earth produces by itself, there's like a, pass, a divine passive there, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, showing a development in this kingdom as well over time. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There's no gap here. Where's the great apostasy? Can an LDS believe what Jesus is teaching here? Once again, the claim is the one true church of Jesus Christ, and yet it seems to be Maybe the only church that claims to be Christian in which nothing Jesus has to say on these subjects matters. Now, there are definitely more and less consistent Christian churches. Uh, Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. That being said, notice all of these points. (laughs) It's not just one. And how they all interconnect. Let's look at um, some more of the apostolic witness on, on this point with the church, right? Let's let's look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, which we've we've looked at already. Let's in fact let's let's start at verse 8. Why not? For by grace you have been saved through faith. The work of God, right? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Wow. There's a consistent a consistent witness here on even Right, the grace through faith that it, this is the gift of God. This is not our own doing, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. No man, meaning when we look at Luke eighteen, especially if we have the end in mind, we better be relating to that tax collector and not the Pharisee, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember. He's going to bring up temple as well here. That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. There's the problem. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. So in that state, there is no hope and without God in the world. But now, hallelujah, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by your own works, by your own attempts, by your own sincerity, by your own experiences, by your own fruits that you interpret as so important relative to a God that is not holy and certainly not transcendent. No. No. By the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Remember, in the temple, right, the court of the Gentiles was far off. And by the blood of Jesus, you were brought near. 
you're no longer separated from Christ. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel, and you now are not strangers. You are, you are siblings in the covenant of promise. Beautiful. For who? Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh, in his flesh rather, in his flesh. He broke it down, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God, Jew and Gentile, right, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Where, where is our work in this? Just Is there anything? And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near to both. Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See that? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's the context for this point. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How many times do you build a foundation? And did Jesus do a good job? (laughs) that's the question and if you believe what joseph smith did will last but jesus what jesus did didn't even last even 100 years depends i guess which lds system you want to emphasize um who's more important i guess i mean no it's built on the foundation what of the apostolic witness of christ jesus in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See that? See it all come together? The church, the true temple, salvation, God's work of salvation, bringing us together, knitting and growing us into a holy temple of the Lord. And what's the, the in the holy temple? The, the presence of God. And if it's the spirit that saves, that's in the believer, that's the context for the one verse on temples, our bodies, whatever the LDS will know. Not the other way around. Not, not a theology alien to any of this. In him, in Christ, you are, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the Spirit. It's almost as if God is Father, Son, Spirit, one God forever. Glory be to his name. And just as one more thing, Jude, the brother of Jesus, right? who even says that Jesus was the one who led Israel right out of Egypt. What does he say about the faith? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, and James being the brother of the Lord. And notice that. Even his brother at this point, Jude, is saying, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. To those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wants us to contend for that faith. Where's the apostasy here? It's not there. So, my challenge is what? Believe Jesus. 
Nine, hell. Okay, <laughs> this one. This one's come up quite a bit. But, I mean, as we already saw, right, uh, in James, for example, right, there's one lawgiver to save and to destroy. And not only do I think a believing LDS can't believe in the save part, they can't believe in the destroy part either. Um, which is why if they use hell, it's a metaphor, it's whatever, it's knowing what you could have had, whatever, whatever it may be. Well, let's look at how Jesus talks about it. Let's look at how Jesus talks about it. There was a rich man. And notice this one does not start off claiming this as a parable. Kind of interesting. Just put that out there. Uh, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, quite a contrast. And you think of the royalty. I mean, it, it was really costly to have purple dye. It's like this whole process with snails and all of that. There's, it was really hard to get that. So very wealthy, and then so poor that apparently even shameful dogs can come and lick his sores and nothing he can do about it. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So yes, okay, there is a sense in which he's saying what he could have had. But it's objective, not just subjective. Um, a. <laughs> but uh, B, um, let's see how this, this keep going. The torment is real. Um, this doesn't sound like a celestial kingdom that's really nice. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. There's your first problem. <laughs> Crime for Abraham to be have mercy on him. Send Lazarus, right, who is this poor man, you know, have him do the work of a slave servant, right? Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's a great chasm between those in anguish and those in comfort in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Do you hear that? There's a chasm between two groups, one in comfort, one in anguish, and that none shall pass. Cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, Right, Abraham, 
to send him to my father's house. He still, <laughs> he just heard what Abraham said. He still wants Lazarus to be his servant here. Send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers or siblings, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So at least warn my family. And he said, And Abraham said, They have what? Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Has there ever been a place where Jesus doubts them? It's kind of interesting. At least their authority, right? No? Mo- they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They just need a sign, a spiritual experience, something to warn them. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. End of story. In Matthew, there's plenty to focus on. It's all over the place. Um, But... Just to highlight some, because um, I really want to look at 24. But we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, even, that whoever calls them a fool will be liable to hellfire. I mean, we have this hellfire in chapter 5, 10, 28, 18, 9, 23, 15, 33. There's this sense of a final destruction of the wicked um, we have in 2541, right? Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And, of course, in, in this, um, sorry, as I turn here, he, t- he talks about, in fact, let's just, let's just read this, the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Notice two groups. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Wait, you're worthy of my father, right? No, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, my siblings, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look at this mirror image. Mirror image, right? You have the saved and the lost. The saved get eternal life. The lost get eternal fire, eternal punishment. Look at this. Go away first for one half. Come, cursed, blessed, eternal fire, inherit kingdom, eternal punishment, eternal life. And these are both fates prepared in advance, even if it's the use of divine passive. Right? There's two categories here. Two categories. And there does seem to be... Um, you know, overlap in emphasis, but but there's a sense in which it's synonymous as well. Eternal punishment, eternal fire, hellfire. In fact, um, in 1028, you know, what does he say? Do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You should be afraid, rather, of the one. Who's the one? God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is a non-negotiable. If you're hearing this, this is Jesus, our Lord, speaking on the subject. Where's the levels of glory? Where's all, where's all the hope? Really, the casualness by which LDS talk about this subject. Because of their inherent universalism and distorted particularism. That is an exaltation based on extraworthiness or whatever it is. Let's look at Revelation. John, right? What did he have to say on this in Revelation? Just to really hammer home this point, there's no way around it if you're really a Christian. Revelation 14. This is the other side of the good news. The bad news for those who reject it. And of course, if you don't have monotheism, you're not even in the ballpark of having being able to accept it. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. In fact, let me, let me read this um, whole section. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, so the third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented by whom? Impersonal demons. No, 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 God. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I could. There's many others in this book. But let's look at one more, 2010. Who 
And when the thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had, been de- who had deceived them was thrown this isn't him throwing himself. This isn't him do, diving off the in diving board here. This isn't, oh, I could have had more. It's a, my, you know, internally, subjectively. No. He was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. And even in Daniel 12 too, right? We have two destinies here. Eternal life, eternal damnation. And are we going to do a word game here where eternal can mean eternal on one and not the other? Look, I know there's um, a couple passages that could be interpreted in such a way, but I think eternal, it's probably a safe bet to say eternal means eternal. Last one. All right, here we go. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity is not enough. I hope that's already been clear. Already. Um, Every single one of these points. But let's jump into this. The true Jesus is the only way. And it's key to see this, that just because you call some entity Jesus does not make him Jesus. right? And if, if we resort to that, and by the way, which side of the political spectrum is prone to this kind of argument? I claim to be this, so I must be that. You have to affirm I'm this because I claim that. I'm a cat or whatever. No. No. Jesus defines Jesus. And (laughs) that's who we mean. And anything else is an idol. Anything else is an idol. We already saw, right, in the Gospel of John, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We've already seen everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone. What about 14.6? Of course, this classic text. But don't let, don't let how normal it is um, kind of rob it of its cutting edge, right? Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He is the God, the way, the truth, the life. Peter continues uh, this, this claim as well, right? His speech in Acts 4. His speech in Acts 4. Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. And of course, if they know their Old Testament, and only God saves, the one God saves, what does that mean about this man? 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By which we must be saved. This is St. Peter, 2 Peter 1, 2, who says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just let Jesus do the talking here. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Even prophesy. And cast out demons in your name. Even cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. Mighty works. Prophesying, casting out demons, and mighty works. And then what? Then I will declare to them. Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just earlier in that chapter, right? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Luke has a similar teaching that he's documenting of Jesus, in which he says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Wait, I thought we were all able to just use our agency and get knowledge and then do the priesthood things and the temple. No. None of that's even here. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then you will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we, are, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Clearly, sincerity is not enough. If it's not the true Jesus, the one God in Christ in which you rely wholly upon his mercy by the Spirit, um, the warnings speak for themselves. The warnings speak for themselves. One more warning. Back in Matthew 19, 23 through 36. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? A rich person doesn't have a sense of his need, but it has self-sufficiency in mind, relying on yourself. I am enough. You are perfect as you are. 
all that garbage. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? That's the question. If your system doesn't bring out that question of, is it, can anyone be saved? If that does not come up in your system, you know it's not this system. Clearly. As we see in Matthew, written by the evangelist. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. Let that sink in. Don't just jump to the second part. With man it is impossible. Look at the contrast the whole time. The one God distinct from man. Creator-creation distinction. Who is Jesus? Both God and man. <sighs> Salvation before a holy God in which we are all sinned and dead in sin and unable to obey. Unable to do the works of God. Unable to breach that gap. That's why God needs to come down. Jesus, who is of not of this world. He's of the world above. Unlike us. Unlike us. What does he say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, so where have we been? Let's wrap this series up. Just to tell you where we've been. I told you where we were going, now where we've been. Here are 10 areas, and I, I mean on any single one of these. Any single one of these. Can an LDS believe them? And I know they're going to gush and say how much they love Jesus. They love Jesus. And yet notice, when the rubber meets the road, every time he speaks, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And if LDS, my LDS friend, if you're listening, I hope you have the courage to see what I'm saying is true. And at least own that position. Why? Jesus said, what is the most important commandment? There's only one God. Your system is polytheistic. That's why you reject the Trinity. If you believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are gods, that's three gods. If you believe they're married, I don't know why you focus on three at all. Two, God is spirit, not a spirit. And spirit isn't interpreted as a finer form of matter, but as distinct from matter. God is spirit. He's transcendent. He's not a part of his creation, even though he did create it. Three, scripture is God's word and trusting God's word. How many times do we see Jesus who never says, go pray about it for yourself, some sort of Moroni promise, trust in your experience, trust in your ability? No. He you says, have you read? Have you read? It is written. Four, Christ as temple. The reason we don't build temples build temples with our hands is it's a rejection of the temple who Christ is. That's why. And in fact, it's this very same Christ who, as we're going to get to, said there's no marriage in heaven, and yet you need a temple built with hands based on some priesthood authority that doesn't even work historically on its own terms because Joseph Smith lied about it. That's the time. <laughs> it's for another time, I guess. Okay. Um, no, think none of this, right? None of it. No, Christ is the temple. There is a heavenly tent. There is a heavenly place, the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, and, and then there's this sense of the church as the temple, as they are indwelt by the Spirit, right? Who is, himself is also God, fully God. Five, who is man? In sin, 
Man is distinct from God, as distinct from angels, and born in sin, in Adam. Okay, And who, therefore, who is Christ's family? True family. It's not blood. It's not blood. No, his true family are those God has drawn to him by the Spirit, his eschatological family, which goes into the next point. What is marriage? The true marriage, ultimately, is between Christ and and the church. And when I say the church, I mean eschatologically conceived. The church after the judgment, um, after it's the wheat and tares have been separated, is what I mean. And therefore, that is the reality to which even good marriage points. Even good believing marriage between believers points. And the reason why the, the Sadducees riddle about the woman and seven husbands is wrong. You, you are wrong. That's what Jesus said. You, need, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God because God spoke to you, right? Why? Because there's no marriage in heaven. In the resurrection, we're, we neither marry nor are given in, in marriage. And, and that is uh, pretty different than having marriage literally built on eternal marriage, and eternal families, which leads into salvation, election, justification, the gospel, in which only God can save. And by God, I mean the only God, not my only God for this world, this time, not Heavenly Father when body and flesh and bones, and there's no transcendence whose family, and then that word God can mean anything. It can mean the divine within as much as divine without. No, 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 no. God is our salvation. He's the only one who can save. And his provided means is Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's it. And the one, the people he justifies are the beggars. Not the people who think they're so spiritual, but those who realize they're not. The thief on the cross. The tax collector. right? Who recognize what? God, forgive me, a sinner. Jesus, remember me. Why? The salvation is outside. It's outside in Christ himself and ultimately based upon the, the work of the triune God and their choosing. Eight, the church, did it fail? If it failed, if, you, if Jesus is wrong about this, how do you trust him on anything else? He says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. His parables assume the kingdom has come as messy as it will be in between his first and second coming. But none of them talk about what agency they're trying their best and somehow we can thwart the purposes of God until Joseph Smith, and then that can't be thwarted. No, no. There is no great apostasy in the teachings of Jesus. There is none. He will build his church in the gates of Hades itself. Death itself will not thwart what Jesus said he would do. If you don't trust him on that, I don't know why you trust him at all. Nine, hell, another point where they can't trust. Just as he's the one lawgiver who can save, he's the one lawgiver who can destroy. And there's the saved and the damned. That's it. Two groups, not 18 different ones, based on the different levels or whatever, based on how you qualify and whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know. No, no. Um, hell is real, and it's coming. It's coming. And apart from the grace of God, that's where we all belong. If you can't see that, you will never understand the gospel. That's why Paul, on one hand, he says, the, the, right, the gospel, right, is salvation for those who believe from faith, through faith, right? 
to those who believe, right, in Jesus Christ, immediately goes to the wrath of God being revealed. If you don't have the bad news, you don't get the good news. In 10, sincerity is not enough. How many times you bring up any of these points, Christians that evangelize out here, you know what I'm saying is true. How many times you bring up any of these points, where do the LDS lean? Do they lean outside, holy upon mercy? No. On them, their experiences, the experiences of their parents, testimonies, inside, and ultimately, because they have such a low view of Scripture, it's their own sincerity. And they pretend like that's enough. Jesus says otherwise. And if you're LDS and listening, you've made it this far. Thank you for listening. It was a long time. But these things are serious and they're worth your time. Um, they're, they're worth it to really wrestle. But I really mean this, and I say this with as much um, care as I know how. How dare you? How dare you claim to have the one true prophet and the one true church and the one true priesthood and all that of, a ver- of the very word of God, the word of God himself, who was with God and is God, who teaches clearly on every single one of these points, and yet you pretend you know better in his name. God save you. God save you. Apart from the grace of God, (laughs) I would be with you. This is not a holier-than-thou point. I know my need, even now. I plead with you to reconsider to trust in the real Jesus. And that does not mean out in the wilderness alone, apart from Christians. God does not save just isolated individuals. He saves them to a people as well. Join a faithful Christian church. Renounce the false gods of Mormonism, the polytheism, the fake scriptures, the false prophets. The <laughs> Come to the triune God who is able to save and lean on his mercy, not on your works. And lean on what he has taught, not your feelings. I have no, I, I plead with everything I am that you take the time, even if you go back through these, and read, read along with it. Read along with it and be challenged by it. Let me end with a prayer from Philippians. This is one of those passages that broke through um, the fog of Mormonism that wouldn't let the scriptures speak, even when it was Jesus speaking. This is one of the earliest hymns we have of, of the Christians that Paul is quoting. And this is the Jesus we believe in, that all Christians worthy of the name by that worthiness, I mean, by grace have been saved in him. This is what we say. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, notice the God-man distinction, though he was in the form of God, did not count, did not regard 
equality with God a thing to be grasped? Why doesn't he not have to grasp at it like the fruit? No, because it's his. But emptied himself. Christ, as God, emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.